I'm Jane Jackson. And I'm Colin Denny. And you're listening to A Better Workplace from Wistia. How you doing, Colin? I'm doing well on this fine summer day. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I've been doing a lot of thinking about kind of our journey on this podcast. I think the idea for it came up last summer, and it feels so long ago, and I feel like we have had the opportunity to learn a ton over the last several months. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in so many ways, I feel like there have been countless learnings to apply to my professional endeavors and and thought processes and everything. But what I didn't totally expect was how much it would intersect with my personal endeavors and everything. It's it's all everything we've talked about and the guests we've had and, and the things we've had time to think about have really been widely applicable in and out of the office. And so that's that's been an unexpected but welcome surprise. I feel like when we started this, one of our goals was to share our own journey, share our own learnings with the hope that sharing all of this would make it easier and more accessible for other companies to get started. And I'm curious how you feel about whether we've kind of achieved that mission. I definitely think so. I've had a few conversations with some friends of mine who have listened to this podcast and implemented it in their own businesses, which has been incredible to hear. You know, this podcast has facilitated a lot of discussions with lots of my friends who who have listened and are in various workplaces that are in various stages of thinking and talking about these things. And so I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, at the very least, which is one of our mission critical bullet points is is to get get the wheels turning a little bit and and get people to think about things a little bit differently and find ways to get started and we've been doing that ourselves here as well like you know at Wistia it's it's been quite a journey right from episode 1 we implemented some updated language that has taken flight in our organization specifically speaking to pivoting away from marginalized groups into equity seeking groups that's probably like the number one thing and i've heard people in our office like you know just passing by the kitchen or whatever like use that and that's been really cool like to see just a conversation that we've had on this podcast have real lasting change and even if that's like a small thing it, you know it can have a have a larger impact because you know people in their lives interact with other people and when they you know it's kind of like a game of telephone but in the good way not not in the way where things get lost in translation we're just trying to like you know cause a chain reaction with this you know with the way that what we're learning and what we've taken away from it so in talking to all of these experts in past episodes i think we've learned about a lot of different concepts And we've touched on kind of how businesses can move that learning to be more a part of the fabric of their companies. And one of the things that keeps coming up and is certainly something we're also thinking about at Wistia is the topic of training. Certainly a lot of this learning people can do on their own and they should do on their own. But if you're thinking as a business about upping the literacy, becoming more inclusive, creating spaces for belonging, 
for a diverse, you know, group of folks at your company that you need to invest in training. And as we've talked to some of these guests and as we've done our own work on the DEI task force, it's really clear that finding the right partner is critically important for training to go well. Because there's so many different ways where it can feel like checking the box. It can have absolutely the opposite of the intended effect where people don't really engage with or take the content seriously because they feel like it's being forced upon them. And there are trainings that really put the weight of learning on folks in equity-seeking groups. So I think one of the things that really came through for me is the amount of rigor you need to put into both finding the right partner and designing the right sort of training to achieve ideal results for your company. So in this episode, we're going to do just that. We're going to talk about what makes for great DEI training and what kind of training to bring in for your organization. There's a lot of different types of training out there that cover a broad range of topics. You need to get a temp check on in a pulse check on your company with where people are at, the kind of discussions that are happening, what you're thinking about as an organization and where you want to get to and how to go about finding the right organization to accomplish that. Our work really focuses on helping organizations to create more inclusive environments so that women, people of color, and especially women of color can thrive at all levels. And the big impetus for us for doing this work and our approach to the work this way is that there were lots of programs that always blamed uh, others for not being successful, right? And so it was, oh, you don't have enough training, you don't have enough this, you don't have enough that, and it was very deficit-based. And we believe that it's really the environments that need to change, not the people. And so that resonates with me as a woman of color, um, also as a lesbian woman of color. That's Beth Chandler, the president and CEO at YW Boston. YW Boston focuses on helping workplaces create more equitable workplaces and experiences for people in equity seeking groups. They focused most specifically on helping women of color move up in organizations. Beth is here to share some of her thoughts on building out effective training programs. There have been places where I've worked where I haven't felt like I've really fit in and that I could be truly me in those environments. And and in those places, I wasn't as successful as I felt I could have been. Um, And so part of wanting to work at a place like YW was because it really spoke to my lived experience and it also aligned with what I believe, which is environments need to change, not people. Can you talk a little bit about how you at the YW partner with organizations to kind of drive towards this mission? Sure. So the first thing we do is just have a conversation to understand where are organizations in their journey and where do they want to be? And then we start asking questions about what might be some of the challenges that they've had to date. 
what is their culture? Because a big part of our work is thinking about really getting to organizational change, which requires change at three levels. So part of it is individual. And so how do you work with individuals for them to better understand maybe some of the biases that they have, the privilege that they have, the agency that they have, and what are some things that might be getting in the way? And so part of it, again, is you know helping individuals. Part of it then is also thinking about the organizational culture and what are formal and informal structures that are in place that might be uh, impeding people from being successful in the organization. And then the last piece is looking at policies and practices because those often reinforce some of the cultural things that are happening. And so we really try to understand with organizations what's happening at those three levels. Think about strategies at those three levels because you can't just do a strategy that's going to be at structures or policies or people and think that that's going to make a big difference and have a sustained change. You really need to think about all three of those things. And so that's what we do. We want to understand where you are, where do you want to be, looking at those three levels, the micro, meso, macro, what might be getting in the way, and then helping organizations understand what's happening. And so we don't go in and tell you what to do. We really want to work with you and support you to build your own muscle to do this work yourself. And so what is what is your data telling you? What are your what's your staff telling you about where are things that uh, you can change and helping people be able to look at those things so that they can develop strategies that are going to be effective. When you partner with organizations, it sounds like there is kind of um, uh, a combination to this partnership. Some of it is training. Some of it is partnering with a influential or a group with power to kind of impact the culture, the structures and the policies. How do you kind of put together individual plans of action, if you will, and partner with organizations to feel out what's going to work in their organization, given what they're interested in in changing and given the existing culture uh, that you're coming into? You know, a big thing for us is meeting organizations where they are and understanding where they want to be. And then we have, you know, uh, things that we do, services that we offer that we think are very effective. And so they can be tailored in ways to make sure that they resonate with your staff, right? So we do a lot of work with case studies, for example. So we're not going to give a communications company a case study that may focus on the tech industry, right? Because people may not understand or see themselves and how it fits in. And so we're very intentional on examples that we use so that people can see how that applies to them. And then depending on the work that we do with organizations, so our Inclusion Boston work is a deeper dive that we do with organizations. And when we do that, we have organizations put together a group of people up to 25 that we really want to be representative of the organization. And so we want people from all departments, all levels to be a part of that. We don't want this to be a group that is top heavy because it's important for there to be buy-in across the organization. It's also important for people who are skeptical about this work to be involved in the process because organizations can't run away from challenges. There are challenges in doing this work. There are pain points. Um, and so it's important to understand that so you can address those head on. A perfect example is often when organizations say they want to you know, change how they hire to have more diverse pools of, of candidates, that some of the pushback is, well, you know, I needed to hire people yesterday. Is this going to make the process longer for me? Am I going to be penalized because we're not going to be as productive if we don't hire as quickly as we need to if we're trying to 
to hire, you know, more diverse candidates? Are we going to hire candidates that really aren't qualified just so we can check the box on diversity? These are questions that people have and organizations need to be able to address them and assure people that they're not going to lower standards for hiring because um, that's not, nothing we would ever suggest. It doesn't set anyone up for success. And that if it's going to take a little longer to hire, how is that team not going to be penalized for that, right? And so being able to address those concerns head on. And then when we do the Inclusion Boston work, the participants are the ones that decide where the organization needs to focus by looking at where are some of the pain points, what is the data saying, and then they build an action plan that they're going to implement and we will support them in that implementation, but they're the ones driving this saying, here's where we think as an organization, we need to focus. Here are the strategies that we want to put in place. And then we support them and act as accountability buddies and give them support and some best practices if they're getting stuck so that they can be successful in that plan. And that helps everybody build that muscle so that organizations can continue this work on their own. I mean, our business model is, is flawed in that we want people to build their own internal capacity to do this work so they don't need us anymore, right? So we want people to be successful. We want people to say, hey, you know what? We've got this. Um, so again, flawed model because we're trying to work ourselves out of business, but that's you know ultimately success for us as organizations feel that they have built the capacity after working with us to continue to do this work on their own. That's great. I mean, you know, I guess to make a quick analogy, it's kind of like a you know organizations or nonprofits that are for you know like I don't know, cancer. We we want that gone. You know, so like the the end state is that is, right. is no need for them, but. I think one of the one of the most important things that you called out really is like a a, a big picture of, I guess, uh, digging into a deeper meaning for it all, not just like the things that we can and can't do or the things we should or shouldn't say, uh, because I think like if we're kind of encouraging people to speak or you know do a certain thing that's not really getting into the deeper issue of, of the why and like kind of a deeper understanding of like what it means to do this work and fully understanding why you should change your language and, and your hiring practices and uh, you know, the, the way that we interact with one another in meetings and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think probably one of the biggest takeaways I've, I've heard is, is just, you know, it's not just about changing what we do. It's, it's more of like a deeper understanding of why we need to change these things and, and being more aware of really other people. Right. And that's how it's going to be sustained within an organization if people understand mm -hmm. the why and if people are willing to have the challenging conversations because sometimes there are, you know, competing interests. Um, but it's important to talk through those and understand why the organization is going to do what it's going to do as opposed to uh, either just, you know, mandate that we're doing this and not address people's concerns because you're not going to get to the change that you want, right? Because how many times has a boss said, you know, do X and people nod their heads, okay, and they don't understand why, so they don't do it, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Or the change lasts for maybe a couple of weeks and then people go back to what they mm -hmm. were doing before. So it's really important that people understand the why behind it. And when they have questions, that they're able to ask those, right? And that people don't feel threatened by that. And so, that's a lot of the work we do with our workshops is helping at least to provide a foundation so that people have language, common language and frameworks and tools that they can use to start engaging in these conversations. Because sometimes we come in with you know, different understandings, different perspectives. And so how do you try to at least get people 
to a uh, common ground and understanding before you, you do the work, right? Because you've you got people, you know, it's on a spectrum and people are all over the place. And so it's really helpful to say, okay, here's the language we're going to use. Here are the frameworks we're going to use so that we can really engage in these conversations as an organization. Yeah, like o- over the last year, I, obviously this is something I think that a vast majority of businesses are engaging in now in, in selecting DEI training and looking for ways that they can get involved. But um, you know, now that we're coming up on, or actually we just passed the year mark recently, which kicked off all of this, which was the murder of George Floyd. I'm curious uh, over the last year, if you have any, any thoughts or data points about like, if there were all these businesses that wanted to get involved, what does that look like now? Like, do do folks reach back out or is there like a maintained relationship or like what, what have you seen in terms of uh, folks getting involved and then trying to sustain that work? It's, it's an interesting question because when uh, there was the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and a lot of work with the Black Lives Matter last summer, we were inundated with requests for doing DEI education. Um, And it was hard for us to to keep up with it. But what we noticed was that people hadn't really thought through why they wanted to do the training. They were just being reactive, right? And so it wasn't a good use of their time, nor was a good use of our time because they were talking to every firm they they could find to try to figure out what they should do. But it's hard to help you know what to do if you don't know what you're doing or what you're doing or why you want to do it. Right. And so many firms, it was more we're reacting to what's going on. Our employees are saying we should do something. So can you do a workshop and, and then we're done? And that's not the work for us. I mean, that's not how you get to change. Um, and so there was a lot of that. And then you know, things sort of come, you know, November, the fall, things sort of flattened out a little bit um, and the inquiries went down. But I would say that people that were reaching out were much more thoughtful in what they wanted to do and why they wanted to do it. And so I would much rather have fewer inquiries from people who are really thoughtful than a lot of inquiries from people who haven't really thought it through. And there have been, you know, probably a quarter of the folks that maybe reached out to us in the summer um, who have come back in the past, you know, since January, um, who said, you know what, it was great you know, talking to you and others to realize we had some more work to do on our end before we could really do something, you know, effective internally. Um, and so that, you know, that was a good thing. Right. Because sometimes that can be more damaging than helpful. As if you are rushing to do something, it's not well conceived. Staff have no idea what you're doing, why you're doing, what's the plan, how are we going to sustain this, that that can be more harmful. And so I would much rather affirm, say, you know what, we need to go back and rethink this then say, you know, come in and do this. And then we don't hear from them. And, or we hear that, you know, it ended up causing harm because they just weren't ready to have the conversation and didn't know where they wanted to go with it. One of the reasons we reached out to YW is because we wanted to figure out how to embed being a more active anti-racist company into our DNA, how we could do that. We needed help figuring out the mechanisms, the things we needed to change in our policies, and thought YW could be a great partner for that. I'm curious some of the things that businesses can do or can look at if they're looking to be more actively anti-racist specifically. 
Yeah, I think it's important for organizations to look internally. And so I think one thing that happened last summer is that you saw a lot of statements. Right? Organizations put out statements about we're an anti-racist organization and we support Black Lives Matter, but they weren't doing anything internally. And for a lot of their employees, that there was a disconnect. Um, so I, I think it's important for organizations to turn a lens internally and say, really, what are we doing around inclusion, not just diversity, but inclusion? And what I mean by that is the way that we think of diversity at, at YW is it's counting numbers, right? So how many people fall into what box? Uh, but that doesn't get you to inclusion. You can have a lot of people that identify as people of color and they could feel really excluded from what's happening within the organization. And so it's important to think about not only how are you attracting different perspectives, different lived experience to your organization, but once people are there, are they feeling included? Are they part of decision-making? Are their voices being heard and incorporated um, and people not just speaking for them, right? And so how are you actively engaging everyone within the organization? And when you're looking at how are people moving up in the organization, because you know, ideally you wanna get people to, to move up and have diverse perspective in leadership positions, you know, are people moving up at the same rate that you know, everybody is, right? So that you're not seeing huge discrepancies between white people and or men uh, getting promoted versus women and women of color, people of color. Um, so it's really important that organizations that say they want to be anti-racist really look internally about how is that showing up and what are the numbers saying about outcomes for people and are they different? And if so, what can you do about that? And then I think in addition to doing that internal work, it's important to not only live it internally, but live it externally. So what are you doing as an organization to live into your desire to be anti-racist? Are there organizations that you're supporting in some way, whether it's financially or otherwise? Are there uh, issues that you're getting behind that you perhaps from an advocacy perspective that you're you know, supporting, asking your employees to support because you, you know, believe in them? Are there things that you're sponsoring that are you know, supportive of communities that are marginalized? I think there are a variety of ways that organizations can demonstrate both internally and externally that they are uh, on a journey to be anti-racist organizations. Kind of uh, zeroing in a little on the training aspect of it, like that, that is obviously something that a lot of companies are thinking about now and implementing and you know, as a way to either combat or you know, introduce in some cases for the first time, a lot of these conversations and how a workplace navigates them. So I'm wondering uh, over the time that, that you've been providing these trainings and designing them and everything, how, how can businesses make them most effective? Cause like, I think, you know, it's, it's important to note that like trainings are not really transactional. It's not this one thing that you do and then everyone has it figured out. Right. So I'm wondering like what your thoughts and, and advice are for like when folks do these trainings, what, what is the goal and like how effective are they in, in your experience at enacting real change? That's a, it's a great question. And there are so many uh, things that you brought up that I think are important for people to really think about. And so the first thing is it's not a, a one or two activity thing and then you're done, right? This is a journey that shouldn't ever stop. And so it's really about thinking about what is the education 
that you want your employees to be getting and how do you want to do that? Because people take in information in different ways. And so often when people hear training, it's, oh, we show up, we check the box and we're done. Right? And often that's how this training started. So when diversity, equity, inclusion training started in the 60s, and particularly when you got into the 70s and 80s, it was about, you know, how do we prevent lawsuits because of all the civil rights stuff that was happening? It's like, we don't want to get sued. So it was really compliance based. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not going to be effective. Right. And it was also there were lots of trainings in the early days that really focused on white people only. Right. And how do we get white people to understand? How do we get them to feel badly to want to change their behavior? Right. That's not going to work either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what people need to think about is this is a journey. And so how are you mapping out this plan for your organization? And what are the things you're going to be doing on a continuous basis? So this isn't something that's just a one and done thing. And then thinking about, as I said before, what are the things when you're trying to make change in your organization that that need to happen so things stick, right? Part of that is why are you doing it in the first place? Hmm. And so it's important to communicate to staff why this is important. What does it mean from a moral imperative? What does it mean from a business imperative? Because ultimately you're asking people to change behavior and change is really hard to do, even if we want to do it, right? Change is hard. And I often share, you know, weight has always been the thing that I've struggled with. And it's not because I don't know what to do. It's not because there aren't enough gyms out there that I could join, right? The big part for me is what is the impetus for me to really change my behavior and to continue to have that changed behavior, right? And so that's the same thing with organizations. How do you compel employees to really want to change their behavior? What's in it for them? What's the value to the organization? And so those are, you know, two big things. It's a journey. It's, you know, got to be tied to the business imperative for the organization as well as why it's the right thing to do and how it's connected to your morals. And then thinking about, you know, how is it going to be effective in your institution? So some organizations, it's really important to talk about race as one of a variety of identities that they need to to be inclusive about in the organization. And so understanding where is your organization and what do you need to focus on? And that's how our training has evolved. Um, So we talk a lot around race because, you know, given our mission, which is to eliminate racism and empower women, race and gender are important to us. But we also know there are other identities that need to be thought of in this same context. And so making sure to bring those identities in as appropriate. Speaking for an industry technology that has a diversity issue, I think a situation a lot of companies find themselves in, particularly early stage, is they are a fairly homogenous group of similar privilege and are asking themselves how to get started. Do you have any tips for organizations that are kind of in that position and, and not sure where, where to first invest as they look to grow their, their team and make some inroads on their own DE&I work? I think you know, part of it is understanding where do you want to be? Um, So not only just where you are, but where do you want to be? And then I think it is often helpful to have an external organization support you initially in that journey. And it's hard to say because every organization is different. Um, So for some organizations, it might be thinking about their, the hiring practices that they use and where they, how they reach out to different groups, who they 
might sponsor for internships. Um, you know, there are a variety of ways uh, that organizations might be able to increase their visibility amongst different populations. Um, for some organizations, they may feel that they do okay on bringing people in, but they're not retaining them. And so what might be happening once people are there? What are people's experiences? How are you using data to collect that? So do you do an engagement survey of some sort so that you can look at that data to see if people uh, are having different experiences? And so you, you can slice the, the data to look by team, by race, by race and gender um, to see, are you seeing differences and how people are saying, you know, they feel engaged, valued, et cetera, within the organization. So I think it's important to understand at least where you want to be, what's the data telling you for where there may be uh, challenges, and then working with a, a professional, whether a consultant organization, to just help you uh, think through a strategy and, and put in uh, a foundation that you can build on. That is great advice. I, I was speaking to a friend of mine who is a founder of a small business. And I think one of the things that happens as you're building your business is we look to our networks. And for many of us, that is a fairly homogenous network. So you're bringing in people like you. And then before you know it, you have a 50 person company that is very similar to one another. And that's, I think, the stage in which companies, uh, from my experience, many companies start thinking about this, but there's already kind of all this lost time and they, they just don't know where to start. So I think that's a helpful nugget that folks should not, uh, they should feel free to reach out for help on this. Right. There's no kind of downside to doing that because these are big, complex things for businesses to solve. And I think... Uh, you mentioned this earlier in our our chat, the risk of doing the wrong thing or doing it for the wrong reasons in terms of like the long-term impact is actually there. And so I think it's important to be doing this and understand your your why and also understand kind of some of the things that are effective and not uh, before you get you get started. And I think it's also important to understand that you will probably make mistakes, right? No one is perfect. Uh, so we all make mistakes. Lord knows I've certainly made plenty. And so it's important also to acknowledge that we're human and that this is a journey and we need to give ourselves grace and we need to give grace to others as well. Because I think that sometimes gets in the way of people. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to do the, the wrong thing so they don't do anything. Right. They get sort of frozen because, you know, you've got uh, fight, flight or freeze. And I think people freeze and particularly leaders, because we're supposed to know the we're supposed to have all the answers. And so it's hard to admit that, you know, when it comes to DEI, we may not have the answers. Um, but I think it's important for leaders to acknowledge that and not let that stand in the way of moving forward, because if you make a mistake, you can correct it. But it's better to make a mistake, learn from it, and move forward than to not do anything at all to try to address DEI challenges you may have. Yeah, that's that's been a pretty common theme throughout a lot of the episodes and, and interviews we've done on this podcast, and and probably is the number one takeaway is that it's it's there is a deep need to make your peace and become comfortable with the uncomfortable and right. understand that mistakes really are a part of the process and. You know, I, I just want to make it extremely clear that everyone 
on this episode and, and people who are thinking about this understand how much it sucks to make a mistake. Like it does not feel good. And that is a very natural part of the process, but it's a very important thing to always kind of anchor yourself to not letting that fear be the thing that stops you from continuing on and, and pushing through that and, and moving forward. And in some cases getting started, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very difficult thing to have to navigate, but we are adults and have made mistakes before, you know, that's, that's a part of growing right. up. It's just that this is, you know, a different type of growth. Um, and, mm-hmm. and no growth comes without its stumbling blocks. And I think also a, another challenge for smaller organizations is just the, that weighing the cost benefit analysis, right. Of doing this work, because often it does require some investment. And so how do you prioritize this as an investment over something else? Um, and I think that can sometimes be challenging for organizations. But I you know, often will say to people, if this is important, then it needs to be resourced like any other priority. Like if you're saying this is a part of who you want to be as an organization, then you need to make sure it has both the financial and people resources that you would put behind any strategy. Because if you say it's important, but then you don't resource it that way, then no one's going to believe it. At least, you know, within the organization, people are going to see through mm-hmm. that and say, oh, we don't really mean this. Yeah. And and the people in those equity seeking groups will will be very clear to them. You know, it's like right. uh, there, there's a lot of people out there that are not only waiting for their workplaces to say something, but more importantly, to do something mm-hmm. and saying something is a very quick band-aid and should act as like a vehicle or a pathway to doing something. And, you know, if, a, if an organization is not, it becomes apparent quickly to the people who are, right. who are, you know, taking note of the place that they're at and do they feel truly supported um, as companies look to, to make these changes. Right. And for a lot of people, particularly millennials and millennials of color, but even beyond those groups, people say that you know, the diversity of an organization and the inclusion matter mm-hmm. to them. And people are going to start moving if they haven't already, you know, to different organizations who they think are doing a better job. Absolutely. Over the past 10 episodes, we've been able to talk to some really amazing DEI professionals each of whom was gracious enough to share their perspectives and their learnings about what it takes to really make inclusive and equitable spaces for a diverse team. I don't know about you, but I found myself reflecting frequently on what they've shared after and really well beyond the interviews that we've had with them. Big same. And as we've said from the very beginning, we are not experts. This has been as much a learning experience for us as it's been for you, the listener. And it's been great to be able to share some of what we've learned from the team and incorporate into the work that we're planning to do. But beyond what we've been able to bring to the office, speaking just for myself, I know that I will come away from the season with a profound sense of empathy and understanding for people and demographics to which I don't belong. And I was already kind of on that tip even before this whole thing started, but now doing the show has taken it to a whole new level, and I'm super grateful for that. I mean, 100%. I feel like coming into recording this, 
I thought I always had my radar up as a gay woman in tech who's had to navigate some situations in my career. And I was surprised at just how much I learned from talking to all of these guests and all the things that we can now better incorporate into our vision at Wistia and all the things I can do to better leverage my privilege to impact change positively. And frankly, I'm really just so excited that you were game to take this to the next level and record all of these conversations for a podcast to share with other people. It's really been such a valuable learning experience, and I've really enjoyed doing this with you. I absolutely echo the sentiment. This has been a, a deeply distinct honor and, and privilege to be a part of this, and I'm so glad that the idea came about. And you know, just thinking back to all the all the brainstorming sessions when this thing first started that we got it off the ground and, and were able to tackle so many of the things that we wanted to has been so rewarding. And I just wanted to offer up an anecdote because I feel like it's very applicable to this whole thing. And so before Wistia, I was, I was working for BPS, Boston Public Schools. And I worked in a program for kids who were labeled uh, EI, emotional impairment, which generally is like the district way of saying that these students or, you know, they're doing regular academic curriculum and stuff. They just have external factors in their life that have dictated that they can't really be in normal classroom settings. They need a little more attention, specifically behavioral intervention. They're, the things in their life, uh, you know, boils down to trauma and it manifested in behavioral situations. And my role there was to intervene and help them process. And one of the first things that, so that's the, that's the backdrop, but one of the first things that happened to me, which uh, when I was talking to a lot of my colleagues at the school, they say happens to everyone, is you see all these kids that are good kids in tough situations and you want to do everything you can to help them. You want to do this one thing. You wish like in a school year you could just do this sweeping gesture or action or something that gives these kids a chance and helps them understand the things that they need to do and give them the tools and the resources and everything and, and export them to high school because I was working at a middle school, export them to high school and they figure it out and everything's great. You just want to help these kids and everything is a success story. But you quickly learn that that's not the case. The real work is in the details, in the day-to-day -day interactions, in the repetition and trying to reiterate all of the things that we want them to be exported with. They might not be able to take the whole, all of the lessons with them, but if they emerge with a few, then they might be better equipped to handle their situations in the future. And I've thought about that a lot as a parallel with, with the DEI work that we're doing. We would love to be able to, everybody who's passionate about this work would love to be able to do something that solves this problem or makes it go away or creates equity for everyone or completely eradicates microaggressions in a workplace. But we have to know that that's not actually going to happen. What we can do through all of the topics in the episodes that we've covered is be mindful, start from a place with empathy, and just understand that it's the day-to-day -day interactions and processes that we're trying to implement and execute that get us to the other side. And another thing I always talk about is that people my age, certainly people older, 
and people younger have to get very comfortable with the idea that everything that we're fighting for is unlikely to be seen through in our lifetimes. We're fighting for a better future. We're fighting for people after us to be in a better situation than we were. You know, I think about that a lot as, as a black man, that there were people who died. There were people who fought, who got into real situations, did jail time for me to do things that feel like everyday life for me. So I think that that is the big takeaway here. Day-to-day details, be persistent, don't be afraid, and lay the foundation. I think that's a great summary and a great way to kind of tie this up. And for our listeners, if you've come along with us for this journey, we want to thank you for the time you've invested in listening and reflecting on all of these interviews. And to us, as we shared our thoughts and our experiences on these topics. It's our sincere hope that you've been able to take what you've learned here and apply it to improve your own little corner of the world or your own workplaces. And with that, it's a wrap on season one. I'm Jane Jackson. And I'm Colin Denny. And you've been listening to A Better Workplace. This has been a production of Wistia Studios. The hosts have been me, Colin Denny. And me, Jane Jackson. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Ron Dawson. Our lead producer is Adam Day. Mixing by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Thanks to Beth Chandler of YW Boston. Check out the show notes to learn more about Beth and the work they do at YW Boston. We also wanted to say another huge thank you to all of the guests we've had on the show, and the people who shared their stories with us. If you like what we're doing with the show, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to hear more from A Better Workplace, head over to wistia.com series where you can subscribe to our email list and get access to bonus episodes and full uncut interviews with our guests. Thanks again, everybody. And remember to tip the waiters on your way out and drive home safe. I feel like you're channeling a much different show there, Colin. No, I just always wanted to say that. Well, I'm glad you got it out of your system. (laughs) I'll see you in the office. All right, see you there. So long, everybody. Peace. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Ron Dawson. Our lead producer is Adam Day. Mixing by name. Or, I'm sorry, is that a acronym (laughs) nope we don't know who mixed it yet (laughs) (laughs) oh man man. (laughs) oh colin you need some coffee man (laughs) who is name is this a new company we're working with is that an acronym national national alliance of mixing engineers see (laughs) 